but we are thrilled to have John Nichols joining us for this edition of The Warning. He's the National Affairs Correspondent for the, Na for the Nation magazine and the Associate Editor of the Capital Times newspaper in Madison, Wisconsin, where he resides. He is, in fact, sixth-generation Wisconsinian. Nichols has covered elections and political movements in more than two dozen countries and is an outspoken advocate for a robust democracy. The author or co-author of about a dozen books on media and democracy, including The Genius of Impeachment and The Death and Life of American Journalism. Currently, his latest book written with Senator Bernie Sanders is number two in the bestseller list in the New York Times. Please check it out. It's called It's Okay to be angry about capitalism. And John, I think the name of your second book that I mentioned is a great great place to start. What is the health of American journalism right now? Oh, it's very bad. <laughs> it's, it's not healthy at all. Uh, and I say that as a working journalist who uh, has great regard for the people who do it, the people who are engaged. They're working harder than ever. And this is not a criticism of, of individual journalists. But the system, the structure, uh, has not survived the transfer from the traditional legacy media, print, uh, and some broadcast into a digital age. Uh, advertising has fled away from uh, newspapers. And so newspapers are often thin shreds of their former selves. And even when they're online, even when they're digital, uh, they have staffs that are a, a tiny portion of what they once had. We have fewer people working on day-to-day -day watchdog journalism at the local and regional levels than we have had you know, in the modern age. This is, this is not a healthy moment. And what happens is, is you lose uh, journalism, as you lose you know, that, that kind of newsroom full of people who go out and cover a community, cover a state, and then look at the national affairs from a perspective of a particular place. As you lose that, that creates a void. That void is filled with misinformation, propaganda, uh, and political ads. And the end result is that we, we have a circumstance now in America where uh, we have, are getting a lot less of our information from journalism, a lot more of it from people who have a vested special interest. I think we saw that this week alone with Rupert Murdoch admitting that he knew the truth behind the elections and yet allowed his people to go on the air and uh, voice um, concerns and questions about whether or not it was a fairly, um, fairly propagated election. That's right. And it's, uh, look, um, one of the things, I think that at the core of that, and, and Bob McChesney and I have written a number of books about journalism over the years. And, and one of the things that we always come back to is an understanding that the people who own media outlets uh, are by and large interested in making money. And the desire to make money, uh, which is certainly part of our system, it's part of our, our structure, that worked okay when you had a lot of advertising and when you had a lot of, you know, that kind of traditional ways for people to communicate. As we've ended up going digital, as our communications has gone in all sorts of different directions, those who own media outlets become more and more desperate for the clicks, for the ratings, uh, for the, the guarantee of a revenue stream. And when that, when that collides with the truth, right? The truth does not always win. It's quite often where the owner of a media outlet will decide to allow something that isn't true uh, to be propagated, to be a part of the discourse, because it's just, that's the way you make your money. Part of the reason why, Steve, you started the warning was your concern about the, 
the proliferation of democracy and keeping the democracy alive. So what's your reaction, Steve, to hearing John speak like this? Well, I, well, I agree with John. A um, couple of things. First, let me thank you, Susie, for hosting again, and also, John, you know, for joining. And let me just make this point at the beginning, which is that democracy requires uh, the ability to understand that your point of view is not everybody's point of view, and that different people have different perspectives, you know, that are built on their life's experiences, who they are, where they're from. And so it is that, you know, John and I, as we have this conversation tonight, um, I think more so than I certainly would have, let's say, 20 years ago, I think we'll have a wide sense of agreement about what the scale of the problems are is I identifying them. And so um, the the issue with Fox, um, this is the greatest journalism scandal in American history. And John and I were talking about this earlier today. It, it's not an age of hyperbole. Um, it's a it's an age of superlatives. Uh, that are necessary to describe the new records that are set every day. You know, it's like the steroid era in baseball, you know, with McGuire, you know, hitting 73 home runs in a season. Um, it, it's remarkable that you know and you admit that you poisoned faith and belief in democracy. And that's what this is all sustained by uh, to make a buck. Mm -hmm. um, that your audience of extremists who were incited by your malicious propaganda no longer can handle the truth, literally. And so you see panic among these hosts in primetime. You know, I've said to a lot of clients over the years when I was doing consulting work, both in corporate America and, and in politics, that you know, people don't drown because they can't swim. They drown because they panic. And what you see in those emails is a revulsion by this Fox base, an abandonment of Fox by them to Newsmax and the deliberate decision to get on board with a misinformation campaign that in the end led to a violent, murderous insurrection that ended the peaceful transition of power set in motion by George Washington in 1797, and thousands of people stormed the Capitol, defecating in the hallways, uh, urinating on the chambers of the House. At the end of the day, uh, it's important to understand that Comcast News Corp, Time Warner is in business with News Corp. The White House Correspondents Association says that Fox is a news organization, even though Fox has declared itself through multiple testimonies and today, you know, excuse me, this week, that, that in fact it's no such thing. Um, so, so we're at this moment where you have a total collapse of trust, right, in the institutions of the country well, you at the same time have 40% of the country doesn't have $400 of cash available. And so you have a crisis in capitalism and you have a crisis in democracy. And when people can't get ahead 
and feel that the American dream is not available to them anymore, that puts tremendous strain on democracy. And John and I were talking earlier as we get into this conversation, you know, is Franklin Roosevelt uh, the greatest leader of the 20th century, a Democrat, Democratic president, uh, you know, author of the New Deal. Um, you know, FDR didn't just save democracy, he saved capitalism. And by doing so, he saved, he saved democracy. And we're at another moment, you know, where capitalism, such as it is, uh, and such as it's expressed and defined in this moment, is really in crisis. And it's destabilizing the politics of the country and making it open season for demagogues who can prey on pissed off people, which is precisely what's going on. John, I want to point out that you live in the Midwest, as we said, in Wisconsin, and quite often the media is covered from New York and Los Angeles with maybe a pit stop in Washington, D.C. How has your perspective changed by living in the Midwest? Oh, it's, it's changed a lot. Um, and I, I, get, I think the best way to explain it is to tell you what I did last night. Um, it is true that I, I write about national politics, and so I'm often involved in talking to members of Congress and, and cabinet members, and, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a heady thing and, uh, to write books with a U.S. senator and things like that, but um, I got to drive my kid to school. And uh, I, I did have to, she's getting a little older now. Um, and I walk around my neighborhood. Uh, and then I also, I make it a point that I go out around Wisconsin, the state where I live, and I will give a talk. If people wanna have me come give a talk, I'll do it. And, I, and, uh, and so last night I was in Racine, Wisconsin, uh, a historic industrial city that's suffered a lot of deindustrialization over the last uh, 50 years. And I was at Siena Center, which is a, a center run by the Dominican nuns. And they had I don't know, a good couple hundred folks out, a good crowd of folks. Uh, and uh, we talked just like Steve and I and, and you, Susie, will be talking tonight uh, very seriously about the state of our democracy. But we did it for two hours. And I took a lot of questions from them. They made comments. We, we interacted. And and. I think that's really vital. I, I think that journalists, uh, it, it, when you parachute in, when you just kind of grab some little piece of a place and uh, then tell yourself that you know everything about it, uh, we're lying to ourselves. The fact of the matter is that it is important to be rooted in a place where you can actually talk to people, take their temperature on a regular basis, and frankly, hear what they're mad about, hear what they're excited about, uh, and what I often find is what they're mad and excited about, what's, what engages them, what, what, what matters to them is not the stuff we are talking about on television. So and, what do you think people are mad and excited about? Well, uh, I think that they're, you know, look, I think we have a huge wrestling in America. And I hear this every single day um, from people with what are we going to be after the pandemic? Right. And I, I think that we didn't pay nearly enough attention to what the pandemic did to our society uh, and how it has transformed us in a very American way. And I understand this. There's a desire to get back to normal. Right. And to to recreate something. And the fact is, it's not happening. We're not getting back to normal. It is. We know about the mental health issues. We know about all the challenges. 
that lots of folks have. But there's been there have been huge economic shifts. There have been huge, uh, you know, fissures in our society and real divisions between somebody who wears a mask and somebody who doesn't. Things like that. And uh, even as we come out of the pandemic, I think people are wrestling with that on a daily basis, and I hear about it all the time, much more than you would imagine. I also one final thing I'll say is I hear from an awful lot of people uh, a real sense that they're worried about America. They're genuinely worried about where the country is at and where it's headed. And it seems as if many of the moorings, many of the, the traditional groundings that we had uh, have been pulled apart. Uh, and there is a real, I, I think a, a, great, uh, a great fear, not, a, not terror or something like that, but a great fear that where we are going will in fact be very unsettled. And that what we've just been through for the last six or seven years uh, may go on. And I think a lot of people are very fatigued. I think there a lot of people are very worn out. Uh, and they frankly, they would like us to get, you know, some sort of stability, some sort of there, there, back. To higher standards. But we know that extremism is fueled and infected by disinformation. Sure. Why is disinformation not illegal? Why Why is it that one is able to uh, perpetuate disinformation without any without any um, accountability without consequences. Well, uh, because there is a, it's very very difficult to find that line right between dissent, right? Somebody who's saying I'm I'm going to tell you something that you don't want to hear um, or that you don't know, and disinformation, right? We know people, there are people who produce false reports, false claims. They, they, they lie to us, right? And yet, at the same time, we also know that there are people who tell us things we don't want to hear and sometimes do so in imperfect and inefficient and, and, and troublesome ways. And so as a country, what we've decided is that we allow this very broad discourse, right? And that's a healthy thing. It's healthy to have a broad discourse. The challenge that we have, though, is that increasingly it's, Susie, it's not grounded in reality, right? Um, and I, I do worry about disinformation. There's no question of that. I worry about misinformation. I've written a lot about it over the years. But one of the things that worries me the most is um, just a, a delinked information, right? And, uh, and what I mean by that is, that as Steve was just referring to the technological change that's going on, a number of years ago, uh, uh, I wrote a, it was involved in writing a book called People Get Ready. And it was about technological change. And we were saying that, look, in the next few years, you're going to be, you're going to experience uh, two new um, industrial revolutions, if you, in effect. One of them being the digital revolution, which we're already deep into, the other being the machine revolution, the AI. And, and this tech revolution. And, and we're just not prepared for it, right? We, we weren't ready. We don't plan as a society, right? We let things happen to us. And those things happen primarily because people who can make a lot of money come up with a new way to communicate, come up with a new way, a new platform, a new vehicle to do things. And there's not much thought about it. We suddenly just find ourselves thrown into it. So think about this. Um, we have experienced, it's just what we've experienced over the last you know, 20 years, 
right? Um, or let's say 30. 30, last 30 years, we've experienced the radical deindustrialization of the upper Midwest. 60,000 factories. Now, I'm not, I want people to take that stat in, understand it. 60,000 factories have closed since the 1990s. Um, they aren't all big factories. Some of them are little machine shops. I understand that. Uh, this is a figure that comes from uh, Lori Wallach, public citizen people, others who, who chart these things uh, historically. And so 60,000 factories have closed. And um, at the same time, we have lost roughly half of our journalists. Now, those are two very different facts. You know, okay, factories, journalists, what, what is that about? But here's the bottom line. We live in places, right? If our employment, their source of employment, the reliable source of employment is gone or has been radically altered. And then our reliable sources of communications are gone or have been radically altered, right? We end up in a situation where our lives seem incredibly unstable. And what we are given is a national communication, right? So many people in communities across this country now get most of their information uh, you know, from a national standpoint, from, from uh, a national uh, platform or source. They're told, well, let's pay a lot of attention to Congress. Let's pay a lot of attention to what's going on in Washington. Let's pay a lot of attention to all the things we'll talk about, but they don't have a grounding in the place where they're at. And they don't have a perspective on it from what they knew and where they were. And as a society, we are, we are getting pulled more and more apart from one another. And we are not in conversations that make sense with our community. We're in conversations that are part of a national discourse. That's not healthy. We have left a lot of our communities now in very, very unstable places. And so that's what I mean by the delinking of information, right? And so, yeah, misinformation, huge deal. Disinformation, huge deal. But the fact that our discourse doesn't talk about what people are going through, that's the biggest deal of all. And that's why, in my opinion, Donald Trump became president of the United States. It was because Donald Trump, like him or not, went out to the industrial Midwest and he said, yeah, your factory's closed. Yeah, people didn't pay attention to you. They didn't listen to you. I will. Now, I don't believe Trump did. And I don't think Trump actually, I think Trump was, he just came up with a good way to sell himself. That was all. But it, it's still, as one member of Congress told me, a Democratic member of Congress who served in Congress for a very long time, she said, people in my community have been so hard hit for so long, they're just glad if somebody respects them enough to lie to them. Steve, how do you expect the modern candidates to take that kind of information and twist it to their benefit? Well, I, I think that John and I were talking earlier before the call, and you know, I mentioned to John that I think it's a really important president, presidency and campaign to understand because the country needs a similar one is John Kennedy's 1960 campaign. Um, we need something better in the choice. And it starts with, I think, political leadership that's willing to talk about concepts that include responsibility and obligation to confront an emboldened and out of control taker class, which are the people at the top, but to do it in an intellectually honest way, 
that talks about the merits of free market capitalism, but talks about the necessity to regulate, uh, to control, and to reset the pendulum because we've created a society apart that's destabilizing the whole of the nation at a time of profound change. And so I think that when you look at the American people, part of the frustration is on issue after issue, there is in fact a national consensus, mm -hmm. but the politics of the moment are unresponsive to an overwhelming majoritarian sentiment, for example, on immigration, for example, on guns, or any one of a number of other issues. And the reason for that is that the pendulum is extremely out of whack on the issue of corruption in Washington, D.C. Right? Part of the crisis of capitalism is the, is the crisis of corruption. And, and what I would argue is that you're in one of the most corrupt periods in American history, unseen since the beginning of the 20th century. Um, and what has become legal and transparent and openly so in Washington in such a short time is genuinely, is genuinely astonishing. But when you look at the amount of money flowing through the campaigns, one need look no further and this is an indictment on the system, not on a party. Sam Bankman-Fried. <laughs> Sam Bankman-Fried is on the cover of Fortune magazine, say, in August, being labeled, this will be the world's first trillionaire. I saw the magazine cover, and I was very conscious in the moment that this looks like Gen Z Bernie Madoff to me. Mm -hmm. Right? He'll never be a trillionaire. It's all nonsense. But he took hundreds of millions of dollars and he gave it away in illegal political contributions. And, and the truth of the matter is in Washington, right, it's the lawyers, the campaign finance lawyers are right now on double duty overtime. Uh, and there's real panic, right, over the implications of the amount of money that flowed through the system, right? But you have an illegal act, right, massive amounts of money. Where do the Where does the money go? Right. The, the money's immediately funneled into the political system. So when you look at, for example, uh, the the number of Saudi agents running loose in Washington, foreign representations, uh, nothing right is is on the is on the level. So, so you need a reform president who will take on or a reform candidate who will take on, you know, entrenched special interests. Um, pharmaceutical industry, food industry, sugar industry, health, nutrition, wellness, all of these things, right, deserve confrontation. Um, but, you know, what you right now have is essentially two factions, you know, that fight against each other. One is vastly preferable to the other because one of them is in alliance with neo-Nazis and other extremist groups. Right, but you have a corrupted system, and the reason it's corrupted is because the American people will tolerate it. And it and so long as the American people tolerate it, it will be corrupted until they fix it. And and what has always been the case is when things get completely out of whack, the American people tend to fix the problem. And that was in large part what spurred the progressive mo movement. 
I mean, there there was a there was the moment. You know, this was a huge seismic event in 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 the history of the early 20th century. Is when Titanic sank, right? The idea, right, that 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 a thousand people were chained below decks because of their cabin class didn't sit well on both sides of the Atlantic. It helped end the Edwardian age. Um, so so this moment right, where a billionaire class has enough money to fund space programs against 40% of the population that doesn't have 400 bucks, it's not sustainable. And, and what we're seeing right now is a lot of volatility in the political markets that represent that fact. And every day, you, you'll hear this, right? You'll hear Republican administrations will do it. Right. Joe Biden's administration will do it. He'll say the economy is good. Okay, good for who? Right. If you look at inflation, if you look at gas prices, but if you look at the hollowing out on a 40 year basis, right, of the of the country's industrial capacity, um, all of these things have weakened the country. And I'll just say one last thing. This is very important. Why are we a powerful country? We are a powerful country not because we have billionaires, although there's a reason that all the billionaires, or a lot of them, are in America, a majority of them. But we're a powerful country because of the American middle class, right? That's the source of American power. And the American middle class has, has been destituted right, by, by 30 years of political policies that have induced a, a rot and a decay and a cynicism that's a, that's a deep, 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 deep threat to our, to our democracy at a time when all manner of international threats are growing, you know, coincidentally, side by side with this phenomenon. Wrote this book with Bernie Sanders, who espouses progressive viewings and, and leanings. And yet so much of the country rejected some of that progressivism, but clearly the interest is there because look at how well your book is doing. So why is it okay to be angry about capitalism? Well, there's a lot of reasons that Steve just ran through a whole bunch of them, right? But, uh, you know, look, I think it, we, we begin with the concept that we are in a new Gilded Age. We are in a, a new era of robber barons. And uh, just as Steve referenced that uh, over 100 years ago, we responded to such an age with a progressive reform movement that really did try to uh, claw back America, get America back from the grip of very wealthy, very powerful people who ran it basically, treated it basically as their plaything. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt uh, used the term that that you know they they had invaded the temples of democracy, right? That the wealth and power uh, was now telling government what to do, rather rather than government telling wealth and power what to do. And and I think that that it is really vital to tell people that it's okay to be angry about capitalism and to focus some of your anger there. That doesn't mean you're going to get rid of capitalism, but it is to say that when you've got ultra capitalism, uber capitalism, something that is so out of control, it's okay to talk about that. It's okay to be upset and to say, this system isn't working right. Because once you do, that becomes something of an, of a, of a, uh, an escape valve, a, a, a healthy 
aspect of our discourse. Because right now, if you can't be angry about capitalism, right? If that can't be something that we discuss, that our politicians won't discuss it, that our media won't discuss it, that there's not a discussion about how the system isn't working right for the vast majority of people, then what are you going to do? You're going to blame an immigrant or a refugee or a member of the LGBTQ community or women who want their rights. Or you're going to, you're always going to find somebody to blame, right? Or some region of the country you're going to blame because that allows power to maintain its power, right? As long as we're not talking about a massive redistribution of the wealth upwards, right? Taking from the poor and giving to the rich. If we're not talking about that, then of course people are going to look for something they could, some place to put the blame. And so the problem here is with our media system, which does not, by and large, talk about economics in a realistic way. It's also with our political class, and I think it was writ large. Uh, and one of the reasons, uh, one of the things that sort of inspired this book was the reality of the pandemic. Because look at what happened during the pandemic when it hit, uh, almost exactly. Uh, three years ago, right, in 2020, right, in March of 2020, when we started to realize that we weren't flying any place, that our lives were changing radically. I, I was in Madison, Wisconsin for the better part of two years, which was fine for me because I love Madison. But, you know, it really changed my life. It changed a lot of people's lives. But here's what happened at the start of the pandemic. We were told that we were going to have to engage in shared sacrifice, that we were all going to have to, you know, throw in and and we even had, you know, sort of these romantic tales. It's sort of like the depression. We're all kind of in this together, and we're gonna we're gonna make it through. It's 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 like almost like a war. We're gonna we're gonna come together. And it was a it was an inspiring message. And I wrote about it. I met people who were literally, you know, believed this in their heart and soul. Uh, workers at a GE plant that made medical technology who were telling me, you know, yeah, we're working three shifts, twenty four seven, and we're saving lives. Right? These are factory workers, and they're all excited because they're saving lives. Uh, we had you know, bus drivers who, who believed that they had to do that route because they were gonna get nurses to the hospital. They were gonna get grocery store workers to the grocery store. And those nurses and those grocery store workers were going into circumstances where they knew they might get sick and die, right? This was serious stuff. Now I know a lot of people did it because it was their job, right? And it's the way they kept alive, they kept their, their, their economic uh, sources of strength coming. But at the same time, as people were engaged in this shared sacrifice, and we were talking about essential workers, what did our billionaire class do? They went to their you know, homes in the Hamptons, or they went upstate, or they, they went wherever they had a, a very lovely place that they usually spent their vacations in. And they set their computers up with a nice view over the ocean or over the mountains, and they started to move money around because they had money, right? And what happened during the first year and a half of the pandemic was that while the great mass of Americans saw their lives destabilized, um, had real concerns about hunger, about housing, about all these other things, the billionaire class in the United States expanded. It got bigger, right? Ultra-millionaires became billionaires. Um, you had 650 billionaires in the United States at the start of the pandemic. Year and a half in, you had 725. That's a significant amount of growth. But here's the bigger thing. At the start of the pandemic, billionaires controlled about $3 trillion, this group of billionaires. A year and a half in, they controlled $5 trillion. They got massively richer. Their lives got better. 
they got so much richer that they started to talk about, well, I have so much money, I don't know what to do. I'm going to fly to Mars or I'm going to fly to the moon or maybe I can't get there right away, but I'll send a space shot up. And then, then they said, well, oh, you know, it'd be really fun. I'm so rich. I'm going to invite William Shatner, Captain Kirk from Star Trek, and he's going to fly. We're going to fly around in space together. Isn't that cool? Right. And we're literally watching this. You know, talk about the divide in a country. Talk about the, the sense of, of, you know, almost unreality. There's nothing the robber barons did in the late 19th, early 20th century that's any more obscene than what our billionaires did during the pandemic and, and in its recent aftermath. And when you start to realize it and put it in that perspective, yeah, it's okay to be angry about a system that allows that to happen and a system that normalizes that. It doesn't mean we get rid of the system necessarily, but what it does mean is we ought to be talking about how to organize it in a much more humane and much more functional way so that the great mass of Americans do not always end up with less, with more fear, with more anxiety, with more stress, with more of the mental health challenges, and somehow the wealthy end up with more. There's something wrong with that, and it's okay to be angry about it. Steve, do you want to add to that? Well, I, I, I'll just say that when, when people are angry and they have a legitimate right to be angry across the country, they become susceptible to a nostalgia of a life that's gone and they knew, as opposed to a future that remains unknowable, unseen, and is being described by a class of people that generally speaking, none of them have any trust on, right? That are that are completely removed. So, you know, for example, when you when you think about this moment in politics, I was watching CNN one afternoon. And about 80% of the people that were on appeared on the screen were from Washington, D.C., which represents 0.02% of the American population. And so the ratings of all of these shows are declining. And a lot of the analysis is, well, people are tuning out of politics, except for the fact that the turnout is increasing in each successive election. So maybe it's not that they're disinterested in politics, because the numbers would suggest the American people have never been more engaged. It's that they're turning off the crappy content, and the two things don't have anything to do with one another, is that there's an epic staleness in, in American politics, and that there's not been an effective messenger uh, that has picked up captured the national imagination, right, in, in the context of a new era, right, in American life. And so you know, we've, we've had, um, you know, two, two categories of presidents in the 20th century uh, that were born in the 20th century. Um, Lyndon Johnson was born in 1908. Jimmy Carter and George Herbert Walker Bush were born in 1924. Uh, this was the generation that was in uniform during the Second World War. Uh, Jimmy Carter was an Annapolis cadet. He graduated in 1946. You know, but this generation held the White House from 1960 to 1992. Um, and then you've had a generation 
uh, beginning with Bill Clinton, uh, of baby boomers that have held power in the White House from 1992 uh, through 2024. And there's going to be a moment of generational change in the country. And, and what you hope to see is a dynamism, enthusiasm, uh, not to go and do message testing and polling and come up with trite sound bites and all manner of banal, banal expressions, but, but instead, right, to have an animating vision about where the country should go, how to take it there, that can be inclusive, invite people to come in and roots them to economic interest. At the end of the day, the purpose of politics is, is, is the peace, prosperity, and domestic tranquility business. Right? What partly was broken about the American media is what, why is Marjorie Taylor Greene so famous? I mean, there's a lot of Republican congressmen up there. Why, why do you know who she is? You know who she is for the same reason that people slow down to take a look at the accident because of the spectacle, because of the incentives. Because the person who's up there who's an expert in nuclear arms proliferation doesn't get onto cable news. The crazy people do. And, and so we, we have in our politics a, a, a synergy of, of highly dysfunctional people that, that have come together, that are exerting power. A lot of it, though, is a chimera. It's not real. It's entertainment that a couple million people are watching. We're not hostages to it, but there needs to be a political leader who steps forward with conviction who will break free of it. And, and, and that's someone who's younger, who has idealism, enough pragmatism, and can articulate a reform message because we need deep reform across wide swaths of American life. Don, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on just what we're doing right now, which is speaking directly to a group of people. Ever since the computers came out with the cameras, and during the pandemic, people realized that they could sit in front of a camera and unload and opine and suddenly get followers, mm -hmm. it has led to the advent of absolutely unmerited journalism without sources without education, and people get followings via social media. I'm about to ask uh, some questions from some of our people that have joined us here in the warning. And one of them talks just about this. I'll, I'll actually go right to this. Gail Proctor mentions the failure of the move to digital journalism ethically. Please discuss content moderation from the regulating social media platforms to how this might be coming in the future to news, to network and cable reporting. As in, will there someday be a ticker tape on the bottom of each news station reading a red-green fact-checking AI? And that kind of plays right into what I had to say, is that we have a lot of um, backseat journalists who basically have no proof, have no education, have no fact-checking and no source-checking, and yet create a following and cause a stir much in the same way that Marjorie Taylor Greene did with her space lasers and the like. Uh, because of uh, the immediacy of cameras and because everyone seems to feel that they are themselves the, the second coming of Peter Jennings. Yeah. Well, it's okay if people do, but it's, remember, we have always had 
uh, people who practice journalism who didn't have a big degree and didn't have a lot of background. And, and you know, you look at the weekly newspaper editor, uh, you know, I, I, when I was a little kid, I was 11 years old and I rode down the main street of my small town uh, on my bicycle and I went to the weekly newspaper office. And I said to Carl Kruger, who was the editor, publisher, reporter, photographer, printer, ad salesman, and everything else at this, it was a one-man shop in, in this little town. Said, I, I'm, you know, I read the Constitution, I read the Bill of Rights, I'm, I'm reporting for duty. I want to be a journalist. And, and he said, well, great, I'll give you $5 for every story and a dollar for every picture that turns out. And I rode off on my bike and that night I covered the school board meeting, right? So it's important to understand that journalism is not, you know, it's not a group of high priests, right? It's not a, a group of people who, you know, always are, are, you know, the perfectly trained, most knowledgeable or something like that. But what's fallen apart in America, to my view, is this notion that there is at least some, you know, kind of there there for what journalism and communication should be. There's some basic set of concepts. And one of them is that um, you do try to be grounded in facts. And in reality, you can have a perspective, you can have a point of view, but, but there ought to be some grounding in reality. And, and that has just been blown apart. And what blows it apart is not necessarily that the people who are practicing, you know, whatever this is, uh, are always disreputable people. They're desperate. They want ratings. They want clicks. They want to be paid attention to. And so they will go, just as in politics, they will go to more extreme places. And again, this is this de-linked information, right? It is the best way, if you're in social media, the best way to get a big following, right, is to talk about the thing that everybody else is talking about, right? The biggest issue and just say something more extreme about it. The best way to lose a following, right, to end up nowhere, is to talk about something that is perhaps very, very important, but doesn't lend itself to clicks and ratings, right? That, that actually has a depth to it. What we're doing here, just think about the time we're spending here. Uh, we're gonna spend a couple hours, we are involved in spending the better part of a couple hours uh, where we're talking and, uh, and we're going in deeper. It doesn't mean that Steve or I or, or either or you, Susie, or other folks here are going to get all the way to where we need to be, but we're giving it the time and the space. Most of our communications now doesn't do that. Most of our communications now is, you know, a number of characters on Twitter, uh, you know, a quick, you know, burst on cable. You know, when you're on cable, and Steve knows this, I do too. I've done, I haven't done as many cable shows as Steve, but um, I do a lot of them, and and. You know, if, if it's a four minute segment, that's massive, right? That's, wow, I was on for four or five minutes. That's amazing. Uh, but, you know, you can't say, it. you don't say much there. And so the whole system now is airing against depth and against seriousness, against any kind of, you know, uh, set of standards for it. And I know that we think that this is something that just happened, you know, like it's happening of, of the moment. Uh, but I will emphasize, Right now, roughly this week or roughly in this period, we're 20 years on from the start of the war in Iraq, right? And you look at the communications leading up to the war in Iraq in this country. It was horrible. It was a disaster. We didn't have the debate we needed to have. We didn't have the range of opinions that we needed to have. And our traditional journalism did a lousy job, right? They, they did a lousy job. They lost a lot of trust. And 
The fact is, I don't think we've rebuilt that trust. So just as Steve says, we need a new generation of political figures who come forward and offer something, you know, that that really is what's next, what is, and that, and also not just what's next, but that which is better. We need that in journalism too. We have to be having a deep, deep discussion about how to how to recreate journalism in this new era. And we're not doing it. We're not, we're not having it as seriously as we need to. And so as our journalism comes apart and becomes, you know, just pulled in a thousand directions with very little sort of, you know, center of gravity and center of reality, our politics is being pulled apart as well, right? And as a society, uh, what we desperately need, and, and I know I saw somebody on the bottom said, well, you know, there's no savior coming or there's no, you know, the cavalry isn't coming or whatever. Uh, and and I think that that there does have to be, you know, we do have to have leadership and we do have to have people stand up. And you know what, the when Steve talks about a political leader who might stand up a new kind of political leader, uh, I'll tell you what, what that political leader is going to be. It's going to be somebody who says, you know what, not just, I'm just not going to do these cable shows. I'm just, I'm not going to do it. I will, you want to sit down for an hour and talk about something serious? I'm glad to do it. But I'm not going to do this soundbite thing. And I'm not going to go on and answer the question of the moment about a balloon floating someplace or something like that. I'm going to come because I want to talk about real things that really matter. And I don't know if we can get that. I don't know if it'll work. But I will tell you that that's the breaking point. That's the point where somebody says, I, just, I don't want to just give you a different politics. I want to give you a different discourse in America. And I want to give you a discourse that actually takes you seriously. So, John, throw out some names then. Who's of interest to you? Ro Khanna from California. Um, he's not overly well known. He's in his mid 40s. He's a congressman from Silicon Valley. Uh, I don't always agree with Ro on every issue, but I can uh, tell you that that he's deep. He wrote a book um, a year or so ago about the economy and the next economy and where we're headed. And uh, Jurgen Habermas blurbed it, you know, one of the greatest thinkers in the world. And the bottom line is that Rokana is a very, very deep thinker. Uh, and he somehow figured out how to do that in politics. And so I think he's very interesting. I'll give you a Republican, I think is interesting. Nancy Mace uh, from down in the Carolinas. I don't certainly don't agree with her on a lot of things, uh, but I can tell you that, you know, every once in a while, she will uh, really deviate from the, the pattern and, and, and bring a, an element of seriousness to it, which is, I think, very hard in the Republican Congressional Caucus at this point. Um, and I, I can run down a list of a lot of people. I Like Steve, I do look for people that are younger than me, who I think are, are the ones who are getting it right. And as I look at state legislatures around the country, I see a ton of people rising up who, are, uh, who came into politics in, by different routes. My state representative in Madison is a chef. She was a, she was a uh, restaurateur. And uh, when the pandemic hit, uh, she, they weren't, her restaurant wasn't operating in the same way. Everything was all blown apart. So she decided to run for the legislature. And she's turned out to be a brilliant legislator, Francesca Hong. Um, what I will say to you is uh, that, that we are now in a transition period, as Steve well points out, We've got an 80-year-old president. One of his likely challengers is almost 80. Um, you know, I mean, we, we have to move to this next place. 
And as we move to this next place, the ideal thing would be not simply to move with the traditional political class, but to move with new types of political leaders and people who come from different spots and are frankly willing to be dramatically more blunt about what needs to happen in the country. Steve, who's of interest to you? I think that one of the things that's really interesting and unique about the country is that it's produced the right leaders at the right moments, almost providentially. You know, Dwight Eisenhower was a lieutenant colonel in the army in 1939 who hadn't been promoted in 13 years. Um, when Abraham Lincoln was elected president, William Tecumseh Sherman wrote a letter to a close friend saying the country's doomed. Uh, this guy was a backwoods barbarian who was completely not up to the task. Um, when Lincoln passed away, when, when Lincoln was murdered, um, you know, Sherman recollected that he was the greatest man of any that he had ever known, and he had met all of the great men of the world by, by that point, um, or the ones that were described as such. So I, I think it's a character test where it reveals itself. So, for example, was having a conversation and someone asked me a question about Gretchen Whitmer, you know, from, from Michigan. And that person was excited about Governor Whitmer, about being a presidential candidate and running and asked me about her. And I said, well, I think she'd be a great, great candidate if she wanted to do it. Do you know anything about her? Does she want to be the president? Because just because you become the governor of Michigan or New Jersey or some state shouldn't necessarily follow that you want to be the president. I mean, because being the governor of one of these states and running these races is like being a commercial airline pilot, running for president's like being an astronaut. The two things literally have almost nothing to do with one another. And, and so like on, on the first hand, like I, I reject the idea that the only people who are qualified in American life for the big job are senators, governors, members of, members of Congress. Um, I think that's a big mistake. Um, I think we need people to be involved in public service. We need someone to uh, call people to public service. Uh, we need someone to approach all this stuff uh, with some idealism. You need someone who can communicate, talk, has conviction, knows what they want to do, wants to accomplish something, and is fearless about losing, right? Wants to, wants to run because they believe in something and will let the chips fall where they may. And and that's the type of that's the type of person um, that 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 you want to see rise up and, and get into this. This is the the country has a deep wealth of of talented people, and and some of those people right need to be involved in running the country right in in public service. It can, it can't be seated right to the strangest the most deluded and the craziest amongst us it's not it's not going to work out and so so everybody you know looks around you know what wh who's going to fix it who's gonna, who who's the magic person it's there is no magic person we we have to fix it um people have to be involved in their communities in their in their civic life and you know at the end of the day one of the things that john was saying and and i mean this um, if you have a school board somewhere that bans half the books in the library, that's not a national emergency. It's certainly an emergency for that community, right? It, and, and, and by all means, 
You know, I, I would encourage people of goodwill all over the country to join with anyone in that community to do whatever they could to help get those people out of office. But that community's got to deal with that issue, right? We, we can't live in an era where politics is always someone else's business, someone else's concern. Right? We have to have some honest discussions. Marjorie Taylor Greene's congressional district, those people are not pulling their weight collectively. Neither are the people in Lauren Boebert's district. Neither are the people in Paul Gosar's district. And it's not an issue of ideology. By all means, if you're a conservative Republican district, send the most conservative person. Don't send somebody who should be institutionalized somebody who's reckless, somebody who's calling for civil war. You're not pulling your weight. So I, I think you need somebody who can talk honestly, tell people things they don't want to hear, have an adult conversation. And I think people would appreciate it. And there's a lot of indications uh, out there and a lot of different metrics that suggest that would be the case. You know, but but we'll see. You know, at the end of the day, Churchill had this observation that in a democracy, you know, essentially people get the government they deserve. I don't think the American people deserve the government they have. And by that, I don't mean the administration. I mean the collective whole in its totality in this in this moment of time from a broken campaign finance system, a redistricting system, a lack of representation, wholesale attack on voting rights civil rights. And, and one of the things that we're seeing um, that I didn't see coming, but I should have seen coming because I, I knew enough about American history to know this. Every time there's been Black progress, there, there has been a fierce reaction and regression that has followed it. Happened in the 1920s, happened in the 1870s and the 1880s, and it's happening in part as a reaction to the Obama presidency. And, and so there's a fundamental question, right, that, that has to now be put forward, right, as a, as, a, as a debating point that to me supersedes everything. And it's this. The question on the table is, are all of us in fact at long last created equally, endowed by a creator with inalienable rights, that include life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yay or nay? I'm on the yay side of that question. Donald Trump and others are on the nay side of that question. And the problem for Republicans is that there's a lot of Republican leaders who are on the yay side pretending to be on the nay side because they've been intimidated by the extremists, which makes them a coward which is as bad as an extremist. So beset by cowardice, cynicism, and extremism, you have this broken institution that won't be remedied until you have a reformer that emerges and you don't have refer for reformers that emerge from broken institutions out of victory, that happens out of defeat. So that party has to be beaten by somebody and something that can offer better and politics starts with being able to talk and teach basic economics. So, Steve, who might those somebodies be? 
You don't know yet. You have you have a you know when I look at a candidate, a Gretchen Whitmer is is an attractive national candidate. Tim Ryan would be an attractive national candidate. Mitch Landrieu could be an attractive national candidate. Um, there are there are scores of candidates, right? Potential. I think if you're a member of Congress. Um, you're Abigail Spanberger. You want to run? Take a shot. You're certainly qualified. At, at the end of the day, the, the, a race for president is a character test where you're going to see somebody go out there. Do they mean it? And so, like, I don't know the answer to the question because I haven't seen the person yet who means it. When, when you look at somebody like Gavin Newsom, for example, um, in California, I think Gavin is an interesting example. You know, state of California has spent $15 billion, $15 billion dealing with its homeless problem. Now, did Gavin Newsom cause that homeless problem? He did not. Homeless problem in California has been building through failed leadership for 20, 25 years. $15 billion to fix it. Now, he could ignore it pretend it's not happening, but he's choosing not to do that. So he's taking a big risk. Now, would you prefer, and would I suspect that, would he prefer that that money goes into the educational system? Of course he would. But we have to make decisions about dealing with real issues that are worsening and will get worse at the advent of this age of machine learning, artificial intelligence, so on and so forth. So how do we think about the social welfare net? How do we make it more efficient? How do we make it more competent? How does government deliver a service as efficiently as a private sector institution can? Do they have the technology they need? Do they have the training they need? Do they have the systems they need? So, so you really need somebody who's an inter innovator, who's an entrepreneur, who understands democracy, who understands America, who understands the history of the country, our role in the world, and this moment in time, and is able to project out how do we remain the most powerful nation with the most amount of opportunity that brings peace and prosperity and domestic tranquility for our children. That's what the job of politics is. It's not to impose, it's to compromise. And it's to go to places, whether it's a state capital, a county seat, a town council, the Congress, and to work out complexity in good faith and an open hand in a reasonable way with other people who are doing the same. And when people take a flyer on that and rather engage in performance art, insanity as a vocation, conspiracy as an occupation, time to say enough. And that's this moment that we're, that we're in. There's no place to back up to from the place we're at if you're on the pro-democracy side. You can't accommodate a neo-Nazi. You can't accommodate a violent proud boy. You can't accommodate an election denier because the price of the accommodation is the loss 
of democracy. The price of accommodation with these people is what you've seen happen to the Republican Party. That's what accommodation to all of this looks like. And that's terrible for America and American democracy. Elizabeth Effler asks, how do we reweave the vision of America? John, let's start with you. Sure. Uh, look, one of the things we have to do is to recognize that, as Steve just said, you can't go back, right? There's there. One of the what was great, what has been great about America has been a sense of going forward, right? Of, of you know, we do move to that next place. Both Jefferson and Thomas Paine said that that one of the most dangerous things that could happen to America is if we saw the Constitution that that was written in the 1780s as a straitjacket, as something that that said, well, it's always got to operate in that way. They understood uh, flawed men, especially Jefferson. They understood that you had to you had to go forward, you had to progress, and sometimes that would be very difficult. And and so uh, I think the that reweave is a fine term. I don't mind that, but I don't want it to to get us into the trap of thinking that we need to go backward, right? That we need to you know, go back to something that was better because what was before was not better, right? This country was founded by a small group of white men who didn't let most people vote. About 95% of people couldn't vote at the founding of the American experiment. The great accomplishment of America was that through incredible struggle and turmoil and, and, and often, you know, great pain to the country, we expanded that franchise first to, you know, people who were not wealthy, you know, white working class people were began to be allowed to vote, then to people who were religious dissenters, then to black men after the Civil War, and then women saying, hold it, if you can do a constitutional amendment that lets black men vote, why shouldn't we have one that allows women to vote? And, you know, again, a great struggle and women get the right to vote. Then, you know, it, after women get the right to vote, we say, oh, well, Native Americans, the first people of this country, they get the right to vote. And then, you know, we finally, you know, in the 1960s, we get rid of the poll tax. 1960s, we got rid of the wealth barrier to voting. And then in the 1970s, we finally say, well, I guess young people who are going to send off to wars ought to have a right to vote on whether we're going to go to war. Now, why, the reason I, I say that is all of that was radical change, right? It wasn't, you know, going back to some touchstone. It was saying, we're going to go forward. We're going to move toward something that, that, resolves the the challenges of our country right now the thing that i think we desperately need is a a, a new birth of democracy we need a, a sense that democracy itself is a really healthy thing and it's a really necessary thing and that we ought to take it much more seriously than we do but then there ought to be a purpose to that democracy we ought to be trying to accomplish something and so i always go back to franklin Delano roosevelt in his 1944 state of the union address is effective second bill of rights or his economic bill of rights speech in which he said you know look we we have political rights and they matter and they're really important but what we now have to have is economic rights we have to have a politics and a governance that actually debates the direction of our economy because if we don't if we don't get serious about that then we're going to cede it to a handful of very wealthy people who will make all the decisions and then they will make our political democracy. Our political democracy will just be a theater, right? It'll be something we'll yell at each other on TV or you know, we'll, we'll you know, find issues of the moment that we get mad about, but we won't be talking about what really matters. And so if you wanna reweave America, if you wanna get this 
get us back to something, you have to go to a much deeper debate about something that really matters. And what matters, frankly, is our economics. It's not the only thing that matters. There's, you know, there are a million other issues that matter, and there's some fundamental issues, race, gender, that have to be a part of our discourse as well. But we've got to bring economics back into, into the heart of the matter, and we've got to tell people that they can actually decide the economic system they want to live under. They don't have to let billionaires make that choice. Now, the fact is, the American people will decide rationally. They're not going it, to, it's absurd to think that the American people would end up creating a system that was worse. They would create something that's better, but they have to know that they can be a part of that discourse. And let me tell you, if people actually think that they can have a politics that is serious about creating an economy and creating an, an economic system, a structure that works for the great mass of Americans, you will see so many of these other, you know, sort of the side issues. You know, the, the pettiness of the, the, of the cable shows at night, you will see that dissipate and, and, and fall away because we will actually be having a discourse about something that matters. And I'll close it off just by saying, uh, because I've been able to cover politics around the world, I've been in dozens of countries. I covered the transition from apartheid to democracy in South Africa. I covered, you know, in the Middle East, the, the great struggles that, that have occurred there. The most exciting thing I ever covered was uh, the Scottish independence referendum in 2014. And right at the start of it, they lowered the voting age to 16. They said, anybody 16 on can vote because this is something that's about everybody's future. Um, I was in working class, poor neighborhoods of Glasgow. And I saw 16, 17 year old working class, sometimes impoverished young people arguing about the future of their country. Now that the, the Referendum didn't win, independence didn't occur, but oh my goodness, the, the level of discussion because they thought they were involved, they knew they were involved in something that actually mattered. That if they became independent, they could shape their own country. If they didn't, they were choosing to go to maintain a part of the UK. It was so fundamental. And you know what the turnout was? It was, they were having 80, 90% turnout. And young people, Young people who we often struggle to get involved in the, the political process, they were turning out at the same rate as older folks because the issues that were in play actually mattered. It wasn't a game. It wasn't a theater. It was about their future. And somehow you want to reweave America. You want to make America you know, really function and engage again. We've got to put issues that really matter at the center of our politics, fundamental issues about our economy, about how we get along with one another, how we function as a society. Once we're voting on that, you will see, I think, a much better politics, not a, not a worse politics. Steve, how do we reweave America? I, you're listening to that. I, in the immediate future, we're going to celebrate a momentous event in this country, and that is the 250th birth of America. That's right. And this is a rupture in the timeline of human civilization. This, the birth of this nation is a, is a momentous event. And one of the great idealists of the American Revolution, and, and I've talked and written about him, you know, on this platform is the Marquis de Lafayette. Yeah. And Lafayette is commanding troops at Yorktown. And at the moment of British surrender, you know, Lafayette's quote is telling. He, he says, 
humanity has its victory, liberty has its country. And what Lafayette believed is that everything that John talked about in that grind of progress was inexorably set in motion because of the birth of the United States. Lafayette said that slavery will not survive the birth of the United States globally, though the last place that there will be slavery will be in the deep south of the United States, ironically. It's a prediction by Lafayette. Um, Lafayette talked about the end of colonialism. He talked about what the rise of a republic would mean. A definitional event in the endurance of the country uh, for 250 years, nation made up of all of the peoples of the world who speak every language every day, have created the most powerful economy in the world, most powerful military in the world, uh, the most powerful nation in, in world history, and in one of the great forces for good in world history. And, and so Lafayette, at a time of, of real turmoil in the country, returns to America in advance of the 50th birthday of the country um, in, in, 20, in 1824. Mm -hmm. Presidential election, great worry that Andrew Jackson won't concede the election to John Quincy Adams. And, and he does at a dinner in New York in front of Lafayette. And, and Lafayette travels to all 26 states. And as he does, he awakens this sense of gratitude uh, in the country for the achievement, as John pointed out, of the founding fathers who weren't perfect people. And, and they all hated each other. Mm -hmm. uh, they had great and deep rivalries. And, and you have this moment on the 50th anniversary of the country, the 50th birthday on July 4th, both John Adams and Thomas Jefferson reconciled, both pass away. And, and so on the 50th anniversary of the country, on the 100th anniversary of the country, the 200th anniversary of the country, there was always a great celebration, right, about the achievements of the past. But we should recognize, as John said, and, and I believe this really deeply, of all the moments in human history that you could be alive in, this is the best moment. No argument around that. That's a, that's a real one. This is, this is the best moment to be alive. But being alive in the best moment doesn't mean that there's not serious problems and serious challenges. And the truth of the matter is there has never been a period of American history that wasn't tumultuous, roiling, controversial. This is a dramatic country. Um, and our, our struggles have been profound. Uh, the fights for the expansion of, of liberty uh, have been epic. And nothing that we face today is as great as the greatest challenges in the country's past. And that's just the truth. And, and so when you look at the problems, are any of them intractable? They're not. 
Um, are there guides in the past for when things became out of balance and out of whack and what happened? What happened was the American people demanded democracy, right? They demanded equality, right? And that's the constant. That's the direction of the arc. And that's the answer to the problems is that when you have a system where the richest people can opt out of paying taxes completely, um, when the 40% that have $400 feel like that their children will be worse off than they are, if you don't fix that, it will be fixed in an election. And the side that will win that election, if history is a guide, is the side that's not so committed to democracy, but rather committed to power. And that is what we saw in the Trump presidency and the nation's survival of it and the fact that he was in there for one term should be a close call lesson that we all heed seriously because this country came very, very, very close to a terrible catastrophe in early 2021. John, D.D. Downs is asking you if you would consider a warning essay dedicated to more about Lafayette, which, by the way, uh -huh. I think is a great idea. Well, I can tell you one thing. Uh, my great, 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 great grandfather, Augustus LeBake, uh, was one of Lafayette's aides and, wow. uh, and then settled in, in uh, Bolton, Vermont, where you can still find his grave. Uh, and uh, it. I don't claim any great, yeah, I think Lafayette had lots of aides and lots of people around him. Uh, and, but uh, for me, Lafayette has always been a, a touchstone as has Tom Paine. And the, the thing that, that I think is really important to understand here is that we've talked about it before in this discussion. Uh, Lafayette was very young. During the revolution, he was in his early twenties. You know, Paine as well. Most of the founders were exceptionally young. And they they had a sense that they were making a country, right? That they were going to create something. You know, pain we have it in our power to begin the world over again, right? This is that's an amazing concept. The the notion that that you can actually do it. And one of the challenges for America today is that we don't think that we're a young country anymore, right? We we increasingly think of ourselves as uh, you know, an aging country with all the aches and pains of age. You know, we, we sometimes are overwhelmed by that. The fact is we're still a very, very young country in the scheme of the world. Um, we're, we're on the younger side of things. And, uh, and this country works when it thinks that it's making a country, right? When it thinks that it's actually creating something, not going back to something. That's what I always, I always disagreed with uh, so passionately on, with Donald Trump on a lot of issues, but especially on his slogan, make America great again, right? Right. That it, it, by its nature, it suggested, you know, a backward movement, right? That's not what is healthy and vibrant and good about America. What's healthy and vibrant and good about America is this notion that we are a young country and that we can actually take on all sorts of big things and, and deal with them. And one of the ways, again, I'll circle back to the title of the book, one of the ways is to address and think about our economic system and think about whether it's working right. Should this country, this young, vibrant, great country have massive inequality? Should it have a recreation almost of, you know, 
a colonial type system internally, right? Where you have a few powerful companies, a few powerful people who define everything. Or, or should we have something much more akin to economic democracy, where we the people get to decide what will happen with technology, where we have planning and where we as a society think about what the future should be. I happen to be on that, on that latter side there. And to my mind, that's what you need. We keep talking about leadership and who might step up and who might be the next person. What we desperately need is a universal sense that we're, that we're a young, fresh country and that we, can, that we can look at big problems and solve them. I'll, I'll quickly just say, some years ago, I was in New Zealand and um, in New Zealand's a much smaller country with you know obviously different issues, but they had had a couple of suicides in New Zealand among young deaf children, right? Uh, and it's, they became teenagers, they realized that they, they, they were struggling, right? And they were having a hard time. Um, when I was there, the whole government of New Zealand launched a program saying, no, we wanna, we wanna work with young deaf children to make sure that they feel a part of society. We're gonna expand you know, counseling. We're gonna do all sorts of things. The prime minister of New Zealand was doing national addresses about this. Right. And, and it was because as a country, they thought they could solve the problem. You know, they're like, OK, here's a challenge. Let's get this fixed. Let's let's make sure that everybody feels that they've got a future here. They're comfortable. We can we can address these issues. We don't do that enough in America. We don't say, hey, we just discovered a problem here. Let's fix it. Let's fix it this week. Let's fix it now. We had the train crash in East Palestine, Ohio. Right. And we got what do we get out of it? Partisan finger pointing, right? We're, we're like, the, the, Trump didn't do the right thing. The Democrats didn't do the right thing. Everybody's yelling at each other about it. But what we're not doing is fixing it. What we're not doing is saying, you know, you got railroad trains with, with braking systems that are rooted in the Civil War era. That's absurd. Let's fix it this week. Why can't we do that? Well, the answer is that we've subsumed our sense of youth and possibility and hope as a nation to cynical, self-serving, uh, self-enriching politics uh, that serves a tiny status quo, this tiny elite class, rather than the great mass of Americans. And until we break that, until we get to a sense that we can fix a problem in a week, we can fix a problem in a month, we can actually you know, deal with things quickly and well, um, we're, gonna, we're gonna be on this, this bad cycle, this downward spiral. And, and I think it's time to reverse it. I think it's fundamentally time to, to step up and say, we can deal with things quickly. We can deal with things well. We can make ourselves a better country this year, uh, not you know like continue to argue with ourselves. Steve, as we go into the last two minutes of this edition of The Warning, Mary Ann Carmen shared the ages of the founding fathers in 1776, which I think is very helpful. Monroe is 18, Burr 20, Hamilton 21, Madison 25, Jefferson 33, Adams 40, Revere 41, Washington 44, and Franklin 70. Really heady to think about. Steve, I'll throw it to you for a, a quick closing remark. Well, uh, first off, Susie, thank you so much for hosting again. And John, uh, tremendous privilege to be able to spend time with you tonight. I, I would say this, that, you know, for everybody who joined, thank you. Thank you for being part of the warning community. One of the things that we hope to do is bring 
intelligent conversations like this one, you know, forward um, that are thought provoking, hopefully, um, and that are optimistic about the future of the country. Um, what I what I would say is that um, we are at a hinge of history. Um, Franklin Roosevelt, and I've talked about this before, saw it. Um, he envisioned a global order. He talked about it late into the evening with the Canadian Prime Minister Mackenzie King one evening, and and he said that his his aspiration wasn't that it would last forever because nothing does, but that it would last for as long as everyone who was alive on the day the war was won is still alive. And the youngest of those people are 76 years old now, um, or 77 years old now. And the, the reality is, is that we're moving beyond the period of history that was defined by human civilization's greatest event, which was the Second World War. That war killed 80 million people. And there is an awful momentum about history. And it's that each century has been deadlier than the last. The 19th was deadlier than the 18th, which was deadlier than the 17th. And it built and built all the way through till the year 1945. And the great accomplishment of politics, of statesmen, not just America, is that we have not had a war that exceeded for the first time in history that war. That war, civilization's deadliest, has held itself there. There are 77 years left in the 21st century. And we're moving into a dangerous hour where the country can't afford a frivolous politics, can't afford a naive politics or a delusional one. It's a serious time that requires serious people to be involved in their communities, their states, their counties, and in the affairs of their nation. And, and I hope all of you uh, who are on this, you know, will, will take renewed part in your communities, your nation, and, and be involved. And just this week, um, and, I'll, and I'll say this, the two lowest performing stories um, out of the hundreds now, essays that I've written about, have both been about children. Uh, the lowest performing story was about what happened to the thousands of missing Ukrainian children. And the next lowest performing story was about the child labor in the United States under uncovered in the New York Times investigation in this in this week. Well, I'm going to keep writing about the children, regardless of community community interest in them. But but what I what, what I would say, right, is when we talk about politics, do any of you really want to live in a country in 2023 that passed child labor laws in 1913 with a growing child labor epidemic? When children as long as 13, young as 13 years old are working 12-hour shifts in industrial bakeries, working at dangerous machine plants, working for providers of parts for Ford and General Motors and for Ben and Jerry's, 
and so on and so forth. And so all of this comes out of politics. And so, so what I urge all of you is to be committed, to be involved, and, and to talk to uh, your younger family members, uh, your neighbors, and, and understand that not everyone's going to agree with you 100% of the time on how you see the world, but being able to have a civil discussion is really important towards making things better. But again, thank you very much for all of your time, for staying. We appreciate it very, very much.